begin by giving just a very, very brief summary of chapter 4 of Revelation, uh, just to make a couple of points before we move into chapter 5. Again, I was kind of anticipating that I could cover most of chapter 5 tonight, but when I got to studying, I realized that I was probably not going to get past the first two verses. So uh, again, I can tell you that studying this differently and asking God, okay, show me truth relevant for right now and not just what God is telling us about things that are going to happen in the future. And the book has kind of exploded in front of me. Just uh, all that I'm seeing is just amazing, all that is going on here. Promise made to John at the beginning of chapter 4 is that, that God would show him things yet to come, things that were in the future. It says in, in verse 2, it says, and immediately he was in the Spirit. We talked a lot about this over the last couple of weeks, but if we don't understand that, if we don't recognize the necessity of John was describing in the spirit, we get very stuck seeing the effect of God without understanding the cause or the heart of God. There's real danger in seeing the effect of God because it generally leads to causes us to misunderstand. If we don't see God's heart, many of the things that he does won't make sense to us. To enter into the spirit allows us to see beyond just what happens on the surface and gives us great understanding into the things of God. We read it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, we, we begin with verse 9 where it says, I had not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man those things that God has prepared for us. But the next word in verse 10 is, but by his spirit, we can know those things. By entering into the spirit, we can see beyond what the surface stuff tells us. And it ought to be great news. It ought to be great comfort that God has chosen to let his children see beyond the surface, to see beyond just those things that others can see. It also introduces us just in the sheer magnitude of what John saw when he said, behold, a throne. We're suddenly thrown into the reality of, of the fact that God is our sovereign. And beginning to recognize and dealing again with the sovereignty of God and what that means, that he is our king, that he is our, the sovereign over us. And it, what it really says is that it gives him all say. It gives him all the power. It gives him all the rights because he is sovereign. But the big change for me in Revelation 4 was the thought or the possibility that when John was promised to see future things, the way I read this differently this time again than I'd ever read before, because most of us begin in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 4 and say, okay, the promise is that John's going to see future things, so everything we're about to read in chapter 4 and 5 are telling us some of those things that he saw would be happening in the future. But if you invited me to your house, for example, as I was you talking to Tim, if you invited me to your house to watch home movies, and so I go in with one purpose, one thing that I'm anticipating, and that is that you're going to get out a projector and you're going to go get a box and you're going to start showing me things that happened in y'all's life. But I go in under the promise of seeing these movies, but what happens is when I step into your house, I begin to take in your house. I'm waiting on you to, to begin to show me these home movies, 
But what happens is when I step into your house, I begin to notice the furniture, the pictures on the wall. I begin to notice the furnishings and the color of the paint and all the, the cabinets and the, all that kind of stuff. I begin to take in your house. And so before I begin even watching the movies, I can begin to describe to somebody what your house is like. I think that's what happened with John. I think he, he went in under the promise of God that he would see things in the future. But when he steps in in the spirit, he's overcome by the surroundings that he's currently seeing. What's happening in chapter four and chapter five are not future things. And I know that's a, a huge departure from anybody that you read or any revelation expert. They're going to largely tell you what John is seeing or things yet to come. But I, I tell you, I, I can't make that work. I lose a lot because I, just like I was talking to Tim. Okay, let's just go back for a moment. And don't have to actually flip back there, but let's go back for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. When it says that God has seated us in heavenly places. Okay, where is that? Where is this that he's actually seated me? Is it just figurative? Is it just him saying something nice? Or is that the truth? Because if I have already been seated with him in heavenly places, where is that? Well, if I read Revelation 4 as him describing what's happening right now, the current state of the throne room, then it makes sense for how, where I'm seated. I'm seated there. We talked about this, the 24 elders under David represented the priesthood. Those who believed and 24 would come serve at a time. 24 would always be represented. But every time they were there, they were re representing the entire body. Again, the illustration that I was using with Tim just a few minutes ago was when I was a kid, I loved the encyclopedias that had the pictures that when, you know, you, you might lay down the first one and it would be a picture of just the topography of, of the land. And then there was another clear sheet that you laid over the top of that and it might have the rivers on it. And then there was another one that might have the mountains on it and another one that would have the villages on it. And, you know, so you were on the roads and those kind of things. So you actually at the end... You saw this full layout. Well, what if in this possibility, what if heaven, this throne room is overlaying us right now in a dimension that we cannot see? I don't know, but I tell you that makes sense for how we could currently right now be seated in the throne room of God. And we talked about why seated because we will never be suitable for the throne room until we learn to sit in the presence of God. Because most of us are still thinking in a mindset that God's happy with me when I'm doing. God's happy with me when I'm busy. It's not what the scripture says. What does he say? How do I produce? And from John 15, how do we produce? And we abide. Come unto me, you're weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What does he want us to do in his presence? Rest. Abide. That which produces much. So again, when these connections begin to hit in my head. You know, that we've got 24 elders representing the believers sitting there in the throne room of God and they're all seated. That's not a big surprise because we would typically say, well, they need to be there serving. They need to be bowing down. Not at this time anyway. What's his call to us? Abide. Shouldn't shock us. He could be at least talking about things in the present. If we get there on chapter four and at least entertain the possibility that he's telling us something about the current state of the throne room, Chapter five will make much more sense because chapter five will throw you a huge curve if you think John's describing future events because he's seeing all of this as one vision. 
Chapter four and five, I labeled here in my notes, scenes from the throne room, because he's seeing the throne room in this one moment. So in in chapter four, we see God in the center of all of this activity, sitting on the throne, God the Father sitting on the throne of God, sitting there, you know, as we would expect him to be sitting, that's exactly where I'd expect him to be sitting, recognizing even in the scripture, putting these things together, doing just a little bit of letting God connect. You know, where does it say Jesus has went? What happened? Where was he when Stephen was being stoned to death? Where was Jesus in that moment? He was standing by the throne, standing next to God the Father. The only time in the scripture that we find Jesus on his feet, but he was still standing in the presence of God, standing in the, next to that throne. We talk about where he's seated. These things are not just words. These things are truth that are, again, when we begin to at least consider the possibility that Revelation 4 and 5 are telling us about current things, then for me, a lot of it began to make sense. And I was truly blessed in a different way by approaching it that way. So we're going to move to, uh, to Revelation chapter 5. All right. So in chapter 4, we received a description of the throne room and of the worship that was going on around the creator. Now the action continues that John sees and focuses on something very specific, some particular and very specific event that John gets to witness. Revelation 5, I'll begin reading with verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much. The only time we hear about John weeping. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Including who? Why would this cause him to weep? Because he realized he couldn't either having walked with Jesus, being the disciple that he was, that he too, like all of humanity, was unable to do anything at this moment. And one of the elders said unto me, now think about this, think in the terms of these elders being us. And I want to tell you, everything I read in the commentaries is telling me why we can't be these elders. Because when you read something like this, that says, and one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Who would be a better witness to the reality of that Jesus could do it better than the New Testament church or better than the saints? If I just say that in general, because we have a relationship that the angels don't have. We have a relationship to God that unlike anybody has. Why would we not be in that premier position to make that announcement? What would disqualify us in any form or fashion from being that elder that could say that and make that announcement? And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, 
Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Again, think about these terms. He's using the past tense and all these things when he's talking about it. And like, uh, go back and find that in verse six. And, and I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. That's a past tense phrase. As it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, verse 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests. That should not be phrases that shock us about used with the believers. And we shall reign on the earth. If we believe in the truth of God that we will rule and reign with him, those phrases should sound very familiar. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and a thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I say, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lived forever and ever. So there we see this next episode within the throne room that John got to see. So he starts, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. John saw him who was on the throne. He saw God the Father and he was holding this and it wasn't a book. It would have been a scroll. It wouldn't have been with pages. It would have been a scroll. And one of the things that would happen on a scroll is that one account from one perspective would be written on one side that would tell of believers. On the back side, there would be another story that would tell the same thing from another perspective from perhaps Israel. So that's why it was written on, on the front and back. He was seeing the scroll that was very common because you can imagine they were not going to leave the backside unprinted with the value of what they, what they were going to do. So they would write on both. It would be the same story from two separate accounts, which again, which was very common. He had it in his right hand, which is symbolic of his sovereign power. So we know by that, that he was able all of these years to keep that intact you know, we have to go back into some things to understand really what was going on here. Why this particular scroll? What was held in the scroll? Because when we begin to get that, we're going to become more and more convinced that he's telling us about something that we don't get to experience out there, but that we're experiencing right now. When we begin to understand what was really being captured here, we get a much bigger picture. So the fact that that scroll was in his right hands is, is his commitment to keep a covenant that no matter what anybody was going to do, that covenant was going to be kept by him. That he was going to hold the key in his right hand to something great that was about to occur. So the scroll was sealed, seven seals, and each seal indicated ownership, protection, authenticity. So the, the importance of the scroll is largely in the symbolism 
but the message that it conveys is very tremendous. I'm going to read just a little bit out of my notes, and it would just be easier to understand as I was putting this down. John was brought into a place where he could see God's intention of releasing his people from everything that sin and death had robbed them of. We begin to get a glimpse there of what was in those scrolls. God had a plan held in that scroll that would allow someone who could open it and execute what was in it would be able to remove the weight of sin and the conviction of sin, the punishment of sin forever. And I'll get into this a little bit more. What we have to recognize is what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. What did God do with the garden? He sealed it. There was something, I mean, he sealed it right there. That which was going to redeem mankind that Adam lost. Think about this. Adam could have been the redeemer. When we start looking in a minute at the criteria that it would take for someone to actually open these seals, Adam, before sin, was, cap- was perfectly capable. He lost the, the redeeming plan, and the redeeming plan was sealed up. Who held it for all that time? Where was the redemption of man? How this was going to be turned around? Where was this held all this time? In the right hand of God the Father. A plan to release mankind for remission to be made for the sins of man was wrapped up in that scroll plan and somebody had to come open it. So we realized that from the time of Adam that there was this seal had occurred and was held all this time in the right hand of God. That's what we're reading about. That's the context of what we're seeing. Let me read just a little bit more. This release would bring them into the totality of God's character and the complete revelation of his will and purpose. God's people will begin to experience and express the fullness of all that God is as the seals are loosed within them. If I need to, I'll read that again. But when we begin to hear this, we begin to recognize that I'm reading about something that has already occurred. What else is God going to do to set me free? Not a single thing. Everything that was needed to do to bring me into the the totality of God's nature, the totality of God's character that would completely allow me to overcome sin has already been done. So when we're reading Revelation 5, we begin to recognize that there's a chance I'm reading about about John. The reason he's talking about these things in the past tense is because these are things that have already occurred. So let's go a little further. Let me read that sentence again. I'm just going to read the little paragraph again. John was brought into a place where he could see God's intention of releasing his people from everything that sin and death had robbed them of. That's what John was seeing, a plan in a scroll that would set man free from sin forever. And and then this, this release, the release from sin would bring them into the totality of God's character and the complete revelation of his will and purpose. God's people will begin to experience and express the fullness of all that God is as these seals are loosed within them. That is speaking of a situation that is designed to be us right now. I have, because of the spirit that lives in me, the ability to express the fullness of all that God is already. Now, it's hard for us to process in these kind of terms, but when we start reading these phrases that we've been studying, like two Sunday nights ago, where I'm complete in him. I'm not lacking anything. He's not, he doesn't have to provide anything else. There's not a plan B that gets added to plan A. 
The redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the price he paid isn't going to require step two. There was step one, and that was totality of everything he was going to do. So our search for understanding this really has to take us to Jeremiah 32, if you want to go there. And I'm going to mispronounce these names terribly. But what we'll find back there, and we're going to read this in just a second, is where Hannibal, who was Jeremiah's cousin, came to Jeremiah and asked him to buy his field. For Jeremiah had the right to redeem it. It was sold by a process, and it was Jeremiah's who had the right to redeem it. God's plan for Israel was that their inheritance could never be lost permanently. Agree with that? That what God had promised Israel would always be accomplished somewhere. So his purpose, his plan to give Israel all of Canaan, which they've never had, they've never taken possession of the fullness of all that God had intended, that there would never be a day that that would not be realized. That day is still coming. So he had that plan that their inheritance would never be lost permanently. So there was a plan of redemption in the law that secured this fact. A legal transaction for the redemption had to take place, and it always involved two scrolls. So here we begin, Jeremiah chapter 32, and I'll begin reading in verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalem, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, by thee my field, that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So God had already told Jeremiah that this event was about to occur. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is, is thine, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that, that this was the word of the Lord, because he said what God said he would say. Verse 9, And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence, and I sealed it, and took witnesses, and weighed him the money in the balances. So we begin to hear here this legal process that Jeremiah was going to go through about how he could redeem that which had been promised to him. So he says he got the witnesses, he paid the money, paid the price in front of the witnesses so that everything could, could be established factually so that when he went to redeem it, he would unroll the scroll and say, see, this is what we did. This is what we agreed to. This was the plan for redemption. That's what was held on the scroll, a plan for redeeming the land. Let's read a little further. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Barak, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, who it is, in the side of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews is set in the court of the prison. And I charged Barak before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed, and this evidence which is open, and put them in the earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by the great power, and stretch out your arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. 
Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompenses the, the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day and in Israel. And among other men has made thee a name as this day. And has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand, with a stretched out arm, and with great terror. And has given them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, and a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in the law. They have done nothing of all that thou commanded them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts, they are come into the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They fight against it because of the sword, of the famine, of the pestilence, and what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord, buy thee the field for money. Take witnesses for the cities given unto the hand of the Chaldeans. Guess what? He didn't get to possess the land. Why? The Chaldeans had it. What was the value of the two scrolls that were being sealed up? They were the way that he could someday present it and redeem that land back to himself. You see, something lost with a plan for redemption, sealed in these seals so that when it was unsealed, he could lay this thing out and he could take possession of that which was rightfully his. What happened in Genesis? Who took the authority that was first given to Adam? Where was it then placed? Who had it? What did he say about Satan? What did he give him? Gave him dominion. When did he get it back? When was this redemptive plan secured? Cross. And suddenly these things could be opened. And the redeeming of that which was truly God could occur. Because when we begin to read this, we're going to recognize who was it that was qualified to open these scrolls? Who was it that was qualified to, to execute what was found in them so that redemption could come? We know the answer. We're going to read it in just a second. So Jeremiah was very careful that everything was done legally. He signed and sealed the deed, called in witnesses, paid the silver. Everything that he did was to make sure that there was redemption. The, the sealed scroll was important because it contained the conditions of redemption. Why do you think God's holding? What was in the scrolls? The condition for redemption. That's how redemption was going to come, held in that scroll. So if we begin looking at this as a future event, we're in real trouble. Like when would this actually occur? When would this occur that Jesus would step into the throne room and open this scroll that had a plan for redemption? If we try to make that a future event, it's going to cause real trouble. Because I want to know who provided the redemption for me right now. If the scrolls have not ever been opened, then something is amiss in our redemptive plan. Because I am redeemed. I am a part of that which was lost but now has been gained again. That's our testimony. Lost and by a redemptive work that had been held in those scrolls. Released at the cross by one who could actually open it. See, this isn't just about the future. This is telling us about here and now. This is connecting us to this story. Personally, like I have never even approached it before. Again, after Adam sinned, he could no longer remain in the garden. Instead of resting in God's provision, he was forced to live on, a, on the lower sort of level, that level of self-effort, and to eke out a living through, the, through hard work. This is a condition that sin brought them and now. Again, this is such a shift in our Christian thinking away from doing and performing and working and believing that God called us to be servants. That mindset's got to leave us. He didn't redeem us to serve him. We have to get rid of that thought. It sounds noble. 
It sounds great that I would be tickled to death to be a servant before him. He didn't pay a price so that I could serve him. He paid the price so that I could be his son. Because as a son, I'm going to outserve any servant. Again, a servant will look at what the master has and see the house and see the land and see the wealth and know with certainty that the master will never give it to him. Except the portion that I work for, he'll never give me anything of any real substance. But the son, on the other hand, by right of being a son, knows that everything that the the master has is already his. It's his father. He didn't redeem us to be servants. He redeemed us to be sons of God, children of God. And we should never settle nor teach that the purpose of our life here is to serve him. I will serve him as a son, but not as a servant. I mean, he made that very clear. And we mentioned this often, join heirs. That means that it's going to take agreement between all the parties for anything to occur. It elevates us to a position that we can't even hardly fathom. To be released from slavery itself, the slavery that we have to self, we need a redeemer who would return our inheritance to us. Something lost now returned. To restore us to that which, was, which sin had taken away from us. No wonder a search was made for someone who could open the seven seals. Because they knew that within that scroll is our answer. Within that scroll is the plan. Within that scroll is the means for redemption. And here they are. As long as the scroll was sealed, it was a sign that someone had lost their inheritance. It still needed to be redeemed. Seven is not a literal number. We know that. It's a number of divine perfection and completion. So as the seven seals are open, we will see what it takes to perfect us and to take us out of the slavery that we have to ourselves. The seven seals to me represent strongholds, the spirits that kept us bound to our human nature. These strongholds have to be torn down so that we can be loosed. In Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of truth. We know that. That's scriptural. Only truth can break the seals of lies that bind us to earthly thinking. Every one of those seals, we have to recognize those are not good in this picture. The seals are not good. Why not? They have to be overcome for the scroll to be opened. They're not good things. These are things that Jesus in this redemptive plan had to overcome to be able to open the book in the first place. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Who is this strong angel or strong messenger? I don't think the Bible ever even gives us a reference to who this is. We know that no being is stronger than Jesus. All power had been given to him. This question, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So there's a particular set of criteria that has to be met for someone who has this capability. Why couldn't it have been just anyone? Because all the criteria had to be met. And here, here's some of it. So I, and I just I put this in bullet form. Not just anyone had the right to open the book. Certain conditions had to be met. To be worthy to open this book, he had to be related to humanity. So boy, that's a huge first step. It had to be somebody who was human. Why? What was the critical component of someone being human? What were we given in our humanity? Even Jesus was given in his humanity. What was given that was going to be absolutely necessary for this to occur? Why couldn't it have been me? I'm guilty. There's sin there. What was a critical connection to humanity? Because we have free will. For this person to be able to open this, he had to have walked in humanity and made the choices, lived the life, paid the price. He had to establish himself 
with absolute free will and at any moment to choosing to do something else. Because in this opening of the seals and releasing this redemptive plan, there had to be a connection with justice. And there's no justice without free will. That's why none of the rest of us could open it because justice had already declared what? All have sinned, come short of the glory. The wage of sin is death. Everyone was eliminated. Again, this is where we read and understand that to meet this criteria that Jesus had to be born alive. The only human that was ever born alive was Jesus. How did that happen? Who was his mother? Mary, human. Who was his father? The Holy Spirit. Why did it have to be the Holy Spirit? How does death get passed to us in humanity? Who does that to us? The fathers. It's by the father that death is passed to the next generation. If she had been impregnated by a human man, then Jesus would have been born dead, just like the rest of us. Death is not passed through the moms, it's passed to the dads. So it could be an earthly woman. It had to be someone other than an earthly man. And so Jesus is the only human that was born alive and not under a curse of death because it wasn't passed to him through humanity. Had to have a flawless character. Had to possess certain credentials like that. Had to have a natural strength, knowledge, or position. Had nothing to do with the authority to open the book. He had to be worthy. When Adam lost his inheritance, Satan did not get the legal deed to it. God kept it until the one who was worthy could receive it. And this is what happened at the cross. It says, and no one, no man in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So a search was made for someone. They looked in heaven and they looked in earth, looked everywhere for someone worthy to open the book. According to what John saw, this great search was made. I put down here as a relevant truth, something that has stood out to me. Humanity still thinks, even today, that it can redeem itself by making right choices. We still believe, there's still a mindset, that what makes me right with God are the decisions that I make. This happens even in the world of believers, that we, we think that I'm right with God because of the choices that I make. And I will assure you, as strangely as it sounds, it's not true. Your redemption does not come because you make right choices. Your redemption comes because you receive from God the righteousness that is his son. We die to self, our righteousness, so that his righteousness is evident in us. It's not a righteousness that can be earned. It's a righteousness that has to be received. He wants to see the righteousness of his son on us. So there's not anything that we can do. But mankind is determined. And I hear many pastors, they don't do it intentionally. When you start challenging to do people to do things for God, what are you telling them? What will make God happy? Do things for him. Teach for him, give for him, go for him, minister for him, go to missions for him. I want to tell you that that message is constantly out there. And it's, it's a message that is not true. And we begin to read here in strange ways when we recognize that, that this is telling us about right now, that the humanity still thinks from the days of Adam and Eve, when they sewed the fig leaves together, trying to provide a covering for themselves, trying to hide their sin, man has still been trying to do it ever since. Trying to provide a covering for their own sin. And God's saying, there is no covering outside of the blood of my son. He showed it in Genesis early when he was the one who killed the animal to provide a covering for them that was adequate and suitable for him. We got the message very, very early. 
in the deceptiveness of man's imagination, why we would think we could redeem ourselves, that you know, given enough time, given enough lifetimes, that we will somehow strangely be successful in redeeming ourselves. In the deceptiveness of our imagination, we have a wrong image of ourselves. We see ourselves incorrectly. According to the law, it's, it, it has to be a man, a relative of Adam. Again, what makes him worthy is that he had free will, except only someone who is identified with humanity can open the scroll of God's purposes. The someone must also be worthy to meet all those requirements we talked about, needed to bring about redemption. It must be a man who can take us out of death. It must be a man who can take us out of death. You understand this? Just connect why Jesus had to be born alive. What kind of price was going to have to be paid to bring us out of death? What were you going to offer? Couldn't offer death for death. That's no payment. What had to be offered? Life for death. That was the criteria. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam obeyed Satan instead of God, he sealed up the purposes that God had for man. Man was made for the purpose of walking with God, but Adam effectively put a stop to this relationship by his disobedience. In other words, he sealed up the will and purposes that God had for humanity. This completely changed Adam's perspective of God. Instead of enjoying God, Adam now feared him. Ever since Adam and Eve sewed the fig leaves together for a covering, man has tried to work out his own redemption by self-effort and has failed miserably. Can you see the great dilemma? Whoever is able to take away sin and its bondage and bring humanity into life must himself be without sin and be victorious over death. Only such a man has the authority to break the seals. So the search for someone who was worthy included ever conceivable place, heaven, earth, under the earth. In heaven, the angels were of no use, although they were sinless, they were not of human descent. Since the search was for a man, God himself could not do it because he has, he's not a man either. There was nobody in heaven that could actually do it. Isn't it strange that God the Father sitting there couldn't do it? He held it and couldn't do it? That seems odd, doesn't it? Somebody else connected with humanity had to do it. Then this divine searchlight focused on the earth. Plenty of men there, that criteria was met, but they're not worthy. No man was found worthy to perform this task. Man cannot pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Man does not have the right lineage. His connection with and fascination of the earth invalidated him. Those who have, have died are not worthy either because the fact that they are still in earth death proves that their life could not resurrect them. So there's no man in heaven. There's no man on the earth and there's no man under the earth who is worthy. And we're going to stop right there because next week we'll discover and we'll find who was. Thank goodness we already know the answer. What an unbelievable scene when John sees this one who's worthy, sees the one who's worthy to do what no one else could do. I hope that this causes us to recognize that when we sing songs like majesty, worship his majesty, we recognize that Jesus taking on humanity was the only way that he was qualified to open these seals. But in that humanity, he had to be worthy. If that doesn't make us bow down, if that doesn't make us understand our place with him, we never will. We've reduced Jesus to many things. You know, when we, when we talk about the man upstairs and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's, I understand what people are trying to say and they're cautious and hesitant. But the reality is that everything in us should recognize I'm speaking 
of someone who did for me what no one else could possibly do. And there was only one of him. He made the choice. There was only one who could actually meet the criteria and pay the price. And we know his name. And I hope that what that does is it makes us recognize there's no sacrifice. There's nothing that I wouldn't surrender. There's nothing that I wouldn't yield in his presence because I recognize who he is in relationship to who I am. I'm hoping that Revelation, these passages, is bringing that out even more because we're reading about something we're walking in. We're walking in this redemption because the seals were broken and the scroll is open. And we're walking in the redemption because somebody could open the scroll. Lord, we thank you for this teaching tonight. We thank you, Lord, that we have an opportunity to come together. And Lord, it's just overwhelming to me. As I study it, I am so moved. And I just can't wait to get here to share it because it has just meant so much to me. It's brought me to an understanding and a relevance of this book that I've never had before. Connected me with it in ways that I had never even imagined. So Lord, thank you for this revelation, this book of revelation that is speaking to us right here and right now. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.